Welcome to the Westside Investors Network, WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. And now your hosts, AJ and Chris Shepard. We've got Steve Rose with us today on the podcast longtime friend of ours. He is the CEO and principal of Bristol Equities. We will be talking about how they started investing in apartment buildings and how they were able to manage their business for over 30 years and ongoing. He also shares with us the challenges they had on the first few deals and the difference between investing back then and what it's like now. So without further ado, welcome Steve Rose. All right. Today, we've got Steve Rose with us today. He is the CEO of Bristol Urban Apartments and additionally an avid golfer. So just wanted to say thank you, Steve, for coming on. And is there anything that I missed in introducing you? No, thanks. I'm probably not as as avid a golfer as you and Chris, but every now and then. Well, very cool. Yeah. Just to kind of get started, do you want to tell us a little bit about like what you do and what your company does? Sure. So Bristol Urban Apartments and Bristol Urban Retail are divisions of Bristol Equities, Inc. And we own and operate mostly multifamily, but we also have a retail and a small office division. And we started in 1990, mostly the Portland metro area. However, we do have assets outside of Portland. In fact, we have an asset in in a suburb of Atlanta, Georgia, but for the most part, our operations are within the city of Portland. That is awesome. Steve, it's Chris Shepard here. Yeah. So what was it that kind of got you prepared once you made the decision to get into investing in apartments and starting your company? Like, how did you prepare for that? You know, really good question. So in the... Fall of 1989, I was in Portland. We had moved here from San Francisco in 1988. We were in Portland. I had been looking for an opportunity to invest, and I was really attracted to historic real estate, specifically apartments. When we lived in San Francisco, I got real close to investing in apartment building in Pacific Heights. So I just sort of had this not only really, I should say really driven by the historic architecture first and maybe the apartment business second. And then after moving to Portland, living in the Southwest Hills, driving around Northwest Portland, seeing all this opportunity because most buildings were underutilized. It's sort of been a time warp from for years that I felt like there was a an opportunity to acquire and do some upgrades and get some kind of decent return on investment. Now I gotta say, I really didn't know anything about the apartment business when I started. It was my learning curve was super steep. And I I went through a lot of I went through a lot of structured education and then a lot of networking too sort of creep up on the on the learning curve and figure stuff out. But the opportunity of owning historic real estate and actually making money 
or making an, a return on an investment of historic real estate really appealed to me. Wow, that's really unique story. I haven't, I don't think I've heard of anyone being so interested in architecture that they got into real estate investing. I love it. So, do you think that that might be the reason why you've been able to stay with the business so long and you know just keep kind of at it? And that is, you know, kind of your staying power. Well, I think I think it takes. It's a tough business. You know, one of the. It's a really tough business. And when you look at the apartment market today, and you know, you can even push back the COVID restrictions and whatnot, but just the basic apartment business today is extremely complicated and has the legal minefields, it has market conditions. There's a lot of factors that that I wonder if if I tried to start investing today whether I'd be as enthusiastic and as committed to the business, given how much more difficult it is to operate. Because back in 1990, when we started, it was pretty simple. You know, we were dealing with a one-page lease agreement. Most of us did month-to-month agreements or maybe a six-month agreement. And if you didn't, if a tenant didn't perform, you could easily make a change there and if the tenant didn't like the property they would make a change they're just it was much simpler but really if it wasn't for the returns that are the potential returns in the apartment business that are out there it probably wouldn't be that appealing to a new investor but if you're willing to understand the business and really focus on Basically, the quality of the property, which is number one, and that, that probably is the biggest pitfall I've seen. We see a lot, of, a lot of deals that trade, people that buy buildings that aren't, that really don't like really apartment business. They just they want the return without really putting forth the effort of learning the business, and they hire somebody else to do it. Very difficult to achieve those kinds of returns. So I think, long answer to your simple question, but I think the fact that that we managed the investment, we acquired with our own capital, and we managed the investment and managed the property day to day. I think that gives us maybe a little bit better chance of making a return. And it's those reasons that we've continued for now 31 years. Very nice. Well, Steve, I kind of want to get, I want to take a step back just a little bit. Like, a lot of our listeners here are in the real estate profession, but they may be not as advanced or haven't taken as many steps to like buy an apartment. And I think what my brother was getting at is like kind of what, when you were thinking about buying your first investment, first deal here up in Portland, I think you said you'd moved here from San Francisco or something. Like what steps did you take in order to be able to make that first purchase or that first investment? Yeah, that was, well, so it's interesting. So the first two, I got to say the first two, because the first one doesn't really count. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, was, was, it, was that your house that you live in or something? Or? No, 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 that, no, no, that's it. But that's a good question. No, you know, the first one was literally, I was reading the newspaper, the Oregonian. It was delivered to my house and it was a Sunday morning and I picked up the newspaper and I was looking under apartments apartment buildings for sale. I swear to God, 
It used to be a category in the Oregon. And, 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 back back and when there was a lot that, of inventory. Yes, yeah, there was a listing for a 13-unit apartment building on Northwest 23rd and Overton. And for sale by owner. And I called the number and no one answered. And I thought, you know, this is weird. You know, it's a really good location. And, you know, maybe I should just go down there and check it out. So I finished my coffee and I noticed it was snowing. So this is January and it was snowing outside. So I thought, oh God, I, you know, I'm from California. I don't know how to drive in the snow. I, I had, I think I had a BMW or something. And so I ended up walking down the hill from what around the Vista Spring Cafe, walked all the way down to Northwest Portland and knocked on the, on the door that basically said manager. And it was the owner and we had a handshake deal about a half hour later. Wow. It was $5,000 down. I think we paid $8,000 a door for it, which seemed like a lot of money back then. And we had a handshake deal. and He was going to carry, you know, I think it was $160,000 for the deal. No, it was less than that. $120,000 for the deal and $5,000 down. And the $115,000, he really wanted to carry because he didn't want to have to pay the tax. So, Anyhow, that was the first one. But the second one was a real big challenge. And we still own the building, 36 units in Northwest Portland. And, you know, the challenges were, number one, really expensive interest rates at the time. I mean, I think our first loan was 12, maybe 13%. And that was part of the story. The other part of the story was that very low leverage. I think it was 60% loan to value. And I had a hell of a time getting getting loan approval because I had no experience and they wanted a full resume. Well, my resume didn't include anything related to the apartment business. So did the lender even believe that I would, you know, manage this property and, and be able to repay the mortgage based on my lack of experience. I had to really do a big sales job just to get my foot in the door to get my first real acquisition made. And it wasn't easy. And it was a tough, tough lender who's no longer around, but they were not easy to deal with. And it was the only lender, by the way, that was willing to even talk to me. So, okay. So you went from 13 units to 36 units. That's a pretty big jump. I'm sure all of our listeners are very interested in the, Do you remember the details of that deal? What it, how much it was a door and, you know, why the seller yeah. was selling? Yeah, it was 13000 a door. Northwest Irving between 19th and 20th, the Greenway Apartments. We still own it. The seller ended up becoming a real good friend of mine. In fact, we play golf together and ski together, and he's a real good guy. And it was a pure investment for him. It, was, it wasn't a long-term play. So they had owned it for four or five years and had planned on you know, moving the investment to the suburbs because you know, they felt more comfortable. He and his partner felt more comfortable in the suburbs. So, you know, it was a big move and one that thrust me into doing a lot of the maintenance work myself. Because again, I had this steep learning curve, not just on the mechanics, on the operation side of the administration side, but also on the maintenance side. So I ended up hiring my first employee who still works for us, by the way. And we painted units, we did some flooring work, we did a little bit of electric work, 
you know, minor kind of stuff that, of course, is now fundamental to the business. But it was the only way I was going to learn how to how to understand the investment. And and I, I would say that unless somebody had that skill level before they dove into a multifamily investment, unless they had it prior, they should sure as heck learn it so that they could understand why the expense side of the financials looks the way it does instead of saying, well, why did, you know, why do we have such high turnover costs? Well, there's a reason. And so, you know, that was really fundamental to me learning the business and, and I thought critical to moving forward and believing that, you know, we could control expenses and we could, we could buy, we could buy a bigger deal and we could buy more deals that it was proven that we could, we could make an investment into units and fix them up, put you know kitchen cabinets in, or redo the kitchen cabinets, pull carpet off floors and and sand hardwoods and stuff like that, and and get another 50 bucks a unit in rent. I mean, I I remember, and I won't mention names. I remember an appraiser who did the appraisal on the 36 unit building, and he looked me in the eye as, as we were saying goodbye. He says, "I just want to let you know that." The units right now, the average unit is between 225 and 250 a month, and you'll never get more than 250 a month for these units. <laughs> and and so that that kind of and I said, well, what if I what if I make these improvements? And his response was, it's a waste of money because no one's going to want to live in this neighborhood and pay more. They're going to want to live where they get a swimming pool and maybe a fitness, a workout, you know room or other amenities like parking that you can't offer. So to me, it was proving that we can provide additional amenities and charge for those amenities and be competitive with other buildings, both on the urban side and the suburban side. What do those units rent for today? Oh, God, I wish you had told me you were going to ask me that question. Um, <laughs> I think they're in the 1100 to 1250 range for a really small studio in Northwest Portland. Like, oh, wow. those units Five are next. 350 feet, probably. That's crazy that it has increased five times in 30 years. But right. I can't see rents you know, quintupling in 30 years. Right. Is that just unique to that building, do you think? No. So here's the dynamic that happened. So in 1990, Northwest Portland was predominantly bars and thrift stores. And Dick Singer and a few other people decided that there was an opportunity on the retail side to gentrify Northwest 23rd for the most part, and in some cases, Northwest 21st, and that those, that gentrification would be attractive to not just the people that lived in the West Hills that would come down and go to restaurants and maybe shop at a boutique or what have you, but it would also take the neighborhood to a level that maybe Portland has never seen, had never seen before on the urban side. Because really, Portland was still had its neighborhoods, but for the most part, most of the neighborhoods were somewhat provincial. And the people, yeah, sure, some of them would go down to Nordstrom's downtown to, to shop and, and whatnot, but it wasn't considered to be downtown or Northwest, or for that matter, any of the neighborhoods, 
real shopping districts, kind of Main Street type of shopping districts. So with the investment in the retail, it upgraded the entire neighborhood. And then, of course, downtown took hold and downtown became more attractive. And there was a real reason why people, mostly young people, really wanted to live in in these you know urban neighborhoods because they had to walk around amenities and that no longer parking no longer became became a it was always a desirable amenity but it never but it wasn't a deal breaker and in the old days it was a deal breaker because oh my god you had to use your car for everything you couldn't go to the market there were no markets around to shop to drive your car to the market or you know you want to go to a restaurant you drive your car to the restaurant other than maybe the ringside and Papa Hydens, there was nothing in Northwest Portland. So that really, you know, I don't want to take much credit for any of this because really it was the retail that made these neighborhoods, especially Northwest, very viable. Yeah. How awesome and like how fortunate you were to get into that. 13K a door, it's, those are probably worth, what, 250K a door now? So not only was it quintuple rent, more than 20x on just the the building value which is crazy like i mean when you were looking at that exact market or that exact neighborhood did you have any inclination about what was going to happen so yes and i had a relationship with dick and i had spoken and had coffee and so knowing what his plans were for music millennium for papa hyden's for building what was Williams Sonoma, I think that's right, Williams Sonoma, knowing that his family was going to make sizable investments in the 23rd, what how I could relate to that was we just moved from San Francisco and we lived in an urban area of San Francisco for 10 years. So I got it. So what really makes an urban urban area palatable? Well, investment in retail number one, you know, real estate, residential real estate, both multifamily and single family, that is desirable, number two, and basically transportation, number three. And really, Northwest Portland either was in the process or had all of those things. And close to downtown, it had the core of quality real estate in the retail areas, and it had a ton of quality multifamily and single family I mean, all the single-family homes up in Willamette Heights, in Portland Heights, in those areas surrounding the Northwest area, higher income, high-quality residential areas, pretty pretty safe crime-wise, were actually really safe back then. No one even locked their doors. So it had those, it had the makings. And so if I had to say my biggest, one of my biggest sort of regrets was that I was I had 100% convinced myself that Northwest was going to be the only neighborhood that was going to be gentrified. And, you know, obviously we know what's happened now. And so it took me a while before we expanded, like four, like three or four years before we expanded to Southeast and Northeast. Well, what I was going to ask too is like, once you did get that 36 unit, like how long after that did it take? To, to maybe do your next deal or like maybe tell us the progression of, of how you, you came sure. to be where you are now. Yeah. So, you know, good question. 36 units. And in the old days, I hate saying that, but in the old days you could buy a building for 13,000 a unit. You could 
finance it and you were guaranteed that every year interest rates were going to go down because it couldn't go up. I mean, it was 12% and then it dropped to 10%. And then we thought anything below 10% was nothing, was just cash in your pocket. And the cap rates were 10, basically, and there were 10 cap deals. And 10 cap deals really didn't sell very well. So you had as many 10 cap deals as you could find if you were willing to, you know, willing to take it on as an investment. But so the progression was acquire the 36 unit building, renovate units both on turnover and with the old no cost notice if you had tenants that, or you'd raise rents that people may not, may not see the value in raising rents, even if they were $20 a month and they would move. And then you do the, you do the renovation it used to cost us between two and $3,000 a unit to renovate using for the most part contractors. And that got you a lot back in the day. And then put, you know, basically apply a new rental value, not based on the market because no one else was really doing it based on what we think we could charge for it. And from that point, you've increased the income of the property and now the property is worth more. So you can go to, you can refinance a thing. And I don't think we've ever done a refinance quicker than maybe three or four years, but basically pull some capital out and buy another deal. Nice. And that's how, that, that's how it evolved early on. And then we got to a point where we never wanted to pull more capital out, but we would preserve cash flow and acquire deals vis-a-vis cash flow, period instead of adding more debt. So the idea is the more cash flow you can generate, the more opportunities you can take advantage of as far as acquisitions and continue to pay down, reduce the leverage on existing deals and eventually have buildings free and clear or with low enough debt that even a pandemic can't really, even though it's annoying, but a pandemic can't really be that that bad a deal. Yeah, that that sounds like a great business model. I heard a little bit that you hired your first employee and and you were getting into this apartment building. I wanted to ask, was it all just your idea or did you have any partners or have you had kind of partners along the way? Yeah, so it was my brother and myself, but he lives in LA Uh and we talk a couple times a week. He's not active in the operation. So he's an investor. I call him investor plus. (laughs) <laughs> uh, he's a much better, much better golfer than me, which is very annoying. I don't have that problem. <laughs> oh, I oh. think you do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's just the two of us. We have we have a friend of my brother's ended up investing in some of our deals in the late '90s, and he's still a partner in some of our deals. Maybe eight or nine deals that he's involved in. And he's, he's been, he's been an investor in our retail portfolio as well. Great. So it pretty much like all like really close family and friends though, you haven't taken on like any other kind of like outside investors. Okay. Yeah, no, you know, we've, we've had numerous people, both friends and maybe just acquaintances that have been interested on the investment side. And, you know, the resistance there is I want the management piece to be simple. I don't, it's complicated enough trying to operate a business and specifically the apartment business that answering to investors has never been that appealing to me. Yeah. 
Very cool. And so you, you operate your own management company that manages all of them. Do you have any kind of, do you have maintenance staff on, on staff now too that help redo those apartments or are you still hiring that out with contractors? We have 41 employees we have with a full spectrum on the administrative side and on the property management side. And we also have a full maintenance staff. And so we don't do everything in-house, but we try to do as much as we can. You know, there's peaks and valleys. Right now we're in one of those peak times when there's a lot of turnover. And so when we have those peak, you know, demand times, we have to, we partner with some vendors that, long-time vendors that we've worked with to help out on, you know, apartment turnovers and, you know, stuff like painting and trades like that. We also have a renovation staff. We're, we're just in the process of finishing a 30-unit renovation in the Overlook neighborhood in North Portland. And that was a combination of a GC as well as our own inside renovation team. That's- and then on the, on the retail side, we don't manage, we co-manage our shopping center in Eugene, and we don't manage our shopping center in Georgia. So, but everything else we is all in house. That's a pretty impressive list of assets, and you know, building that up over 31 years. Like, how much do you think that just kind of staying in the game and you know focusing on the long term has helped you get to where you are? Yeah, I think that's the key right there. What you just said. I mean, there were periods when, even though I was convinced Portland still had a lot of runway. And I, and by the way, I believe that today. We made a strategic decision to start a condo conversion business, not buildings that we owned, but basically acquire a building and convert the units to condos. So we, we dabbled in that, converted, I want to say, nine, six or nine properties. I can't really recall. And then we also opened an office in Tacoma, Washington. And the driving force behind Tacoma was it was an opportunity that we had. There was great real estate up there, undervalued, a lot of historic buildings. It was always the stepchild of Seattle. Seattle was on fire, and the people were going to move somewhere. They couldn't afford Seattle anymore. And if you wanted urban, then Tacoma was a great, you know, was a great alternative to Seattle. It had the makings of an upgraded downtown with with people investing in retail. There were a few large employers. And so, you know, we dove into that. We were there for almost 10 years, sold our last deal in Tacoma, and I think 2015 or 2016, somewhere around that. But the whole, never once did I believe that we had hit, we had hit a roadblock and that we had taken advantage of the best market and there was nothing more that we could do and that to get a return in the apartment business or even for that matter in the retail business that we would have to reposition the real estate or sell, which you haven't asked me that question, but we haven't sold anything in quite a long time. We really don't sell any multifamily deals. We haven't, we sold a little six unit deal over in Northeast Portland a few years ago, but that was, that had nothing to do with the investment. The investment was solid. It was just, it became a, a challenge to our management team because it was the only deal in the neighborhood. It was only six units. So 
Steve, you seem like you have a pretty incredible knack for finding a great market. What do you attribute that skill to? You know, we had, uh, so in my, you know, after college, I was recruited to get involved with a company in LA that was, I didn't really know anything about it. It was one of those deals I thought I was going to, I thought I had a career in banking in my future. I was, I put myself through college being a teller at a bank. And so I kind of thought that, you know, I kind of liked banking and I kind of saw a future there. And, you know, I'm not sure I was a candidate for grad school, but it was kind of as you, you know, what do you want to do when you grow up? I knew I didn't want to be a fireman, but being a banker didn't seem to be all that bad. And I didn't want to really sell insurance. And I really didn't know much about, I knew a little bit about business only because I was a business major. But my opportunity with this company was that they sent me to San Francisco to open a business. And so I had to acquire, I had to lease real estate, I had to hire people, I had to make purchases of inventory, I had to deal with the investors, which which was kind of helped me understand why dealing with investors is, is a huge challenge. And, and I had to make a return. And I did that. And not because I was, you know, in any way better than anybody else, but you know, I think a lot of the sort of experiences I had, I could reflect back on and I still do today, that they were they prepared me for running a business and and prepared me for, you know, the downside and the upside. And there was many of those in along the way in the thirty one years there's been you know, this is our third recession, so there's been the downsides for sure. And there's been deals that we bought that, you know, haven't gone, haven't gotten anywhere near where they should have gotten. Now, as we all know, real estate over a long period of time pretty much corrects itself and becomes viable. So there is that. But so those experiences opening up that company in San Francisco and leasing space in Sacramento and expanding to the suburbs of the San Francisco area, opening additional offices and whatnot, really helped me understand the basics of business. So that was very useful, in addition to the education stuff. Okay. So I guess, like, that was incredible information. But, like, when, you know, when you chose Northwest Portland or when you chose Tacoma as, like, realizing that those were areas for opportunity and huge growth. Do you think it, what, what do you think the number one factor was that kind of led you to those opportunities in those specific areas to help you choose to buy apartments in, in those, I guess, growing and gentrifying areas? Yeah. Okay. Good, good question. So I would have to say, so we talked about viability we talked about on the location side, the important factors in believing that a location is either viable today or could be viable in the future based on investment, both yours and, and other investors. But really the bottom line is that if, you know, everybody talks about cap rates and, you know, cap rates are important. Certainly they're, they're really important if you're buying a new product because you know, if, you, if, if your tolerance is a leverage return of 6% and, you know, interest rates are low, you can get there if you 
if you acquire a four cap deal. So, but in, in the days that on the acquisition side, in those days early in Portland where there were 10 cap deals and interest rates were 12%, those deals worked as well. But where they really worked was that value add. So, you know, turning back the clock to like Tacoma or other, other opportunities in Portland, you know, we'd look at, we had a, we had a specific analysis sheet that we did, a spreadsheet, and we factored in, you know, where the investment was the day we close on it and where it could be a year from the day we close. And we'd project out another five years. And if we believed that rent growth would exceed operating cost growth, then we could pay more for the deal and it would present itself as being a decent investment. And so, you know, back in the day, and, you know, the other interesting thing is you could have, when, when interest rates were 12%, earning rates, you know, on certificates of deposit were 6% or 7%. So, you know, why would you take all the risk of buying apartments when you could earn 6 or 7% on your money by just putting it in the bank? Well, now we all know that those earning rates are, are sub 1% and sub half a percent in most cases. So they don't exist anymore. And, and there are some longer term, you know, bond investments and whatnot that can return maybe 3%. But, you know, in the apartment business or really in real estate in general, if you can find your way performalize to get a leverage return at six, seven, eight percent, why wouldn't you do it if you're involved in the business? Yeah. And again, I think the biggest pitfall is people hire, they hire a fee manager, the fee manager goes out and they get it. They want to, they want to keep the business and they, they return maximum dollars to, to the investor because that's, that's what they want to do. I mean, that's what everybody wants. And what really suffers, the tenants suffer and the building doesn't has deferred maintenance because really what you're doing is, you're taking money away from the operation and you're giving it or you're providing it to the investor as cash flow or distribution. So for those reasons, it's if we can run a performance, we've got the spreadsheet that it's not just income and expenses, it's you know, it takes into account stuff like roofs, what year you're gonna have to do the roof, what year you're gonna have to do something with the heating system or the hot water system and whatnot. And so you can project out what those costs are gonna be. And with all that fully loaded, you know, both operating costs and capital costs, you can determine whether the investment is the right one. If it happens to be in Tacoma, then so be it. The challenge there is, of course, you're going to manage it. So you have, you, you got to try and leverage, leverage your staff against a lot of units. And that was kind of the challenge we had. We got up to, I think, 250 units up there, but still there wasn't quite enough for the number of staff people that we we felt like we needed and and so we made a strategic decision instead of hiring a fee manager to take care of it just to go ahead and liquidate that portfolio and move the money down move the investments down to work so that we so, could lev further leverage our staff what you're saying is that kind of the deals were in tacoma at that point in time and that's what drew you to tacoma yeah well what was interesting was when portland this was in, let's see, 9-11. It was 99 when, 99 or 2000, it was 2000 when we started investing in Tacoma. 
when Portland apartment cap rates were at a ridiculous low 6%. And, <laughs> and when deals were trading at 50000 a door, we thought that's so outrageous, there's no way those deals are ever going to work because rents just weren't going up at a pace that made sense. It made those numbers seem like they they were the right, that they were viable. So at the same time, Tacoma was, you know, an eight, you know, cap rates in the eight range and, you know, deals in the 20 to 25,000 a unit range. And so it just made sense that the delta there would be greater than the delta in Portland. And, and we did just fine up there. I mean, there were home runs, there were, there were base hits, and there was everything in between. But, you know, and it, was, it was a solid market. And, you know, you could easily make the statement that if we stayed there, we, did, we would have done every bit as well as we've done in Portland in the years since we were up there in, I think, 2000 or 2001. Thank you. Just great info. Well, I think we're getting on time here. Should we get back, get to our four last four questions? Go for it. All right. Do it. I will start us off. The first one is, what's one piece of advice you would give to your 25-year-old self? Yeah, so I wrote down some answers. I won't read them to you, but <laughs> I've had 40 years to think about this and to think about how to answer this question. So my first one is just be patient. And to every investor, just really be patient that, you know, I guess at 25, you're not very patient. There are a lot of reasons why you get, you're eager and you're anxious and you want to get rolling, but find the right deal. The right deal is the right fit. And, you know, for us, the right fit was a return, a return on investment. It was value add, but be patient. Also, you know what? Start with a bunt single, not a triple. Everybody wants, they see or hear or think that somehow there's an opportunity to make a killing. And there might be, but likely not. And so in those triples, they're super competitive. And, and notice I didn't say home runs, but, but they're super competitive. And there'll be a lot of people that you'll be, you'll be challenged with trying to beat them out. So don't focus on those start with a single or a bunch single. And then don't rely on others to sort of do your homework and due diligence. Do it yourself. Understand the investment and realize that the success of the investment is really ultimately your responsibility, good or bad. And finally, if the deal is right, pay up and shut up. You know, I see too many people nickel and diming trying to negotiate small amounts of money and lose deals that that were the right fit for them, that they should have just paid up. And, and ultimately it would be, there'd be regrets, you know, I, Oh, I should have just paid what he was asking instead of trying to get, trying to shave a nickel here or there. So those, that would be my 25 year old self. That last piece is just such great advice. You know, the opportunity cost of losing a deal when you're talking about like something on a, an inspection, you know, repair addendum or whatnot is when you look at it 31 years later, having your cash flow pay down the debt to zero and probably fund a couple other investments. It is right. looking back at hindsight 2020 there for sure. Okay. We didn't really get to chat too much about 
you know, when you grew up, but we, or, or what your parents like kind of values were something we'd like to do, but what was your first entrepreneurial endeavor? So, you know, this, we're going way back, but I'll just throw this out there. So when I was 14, I had a paper route and it was a coveted paper route. I grew up in LA and I had this paper route. I delivered an afternoon newspaper after school on my Schwinn Stingray, by the way. And I delivered to the who's who of Hollywood. Some of my clients were Liza Minnelli, Judy Garland, Rock Hudson. And I was responsible for doing the collections every month. Having to go door to door, there was no online presence. There was no, you couldn't even mail a check in to the newspaper. I had to, to collect the money, either cash or check. And, and then I had to give it to my boss. And it was $6 a month for the newspaper. And so I had to go to these, to these houses and knock on the door and say, hi, I'm the paper guy, and I'm here to collect. And I'd have a little book, and I would, a little ledger, and I would give them a receipt, and they would give me the money. Well, for the most part, they were butlers of these huge houses, and I would have to, when I decided that I really wanted to sell myself because I wanted a tip, and so I'd remind them that I was really good at chucking the paper over the fence and not landing it in the swimming pool, and that I deserved a little bit of gratuity at the end of the month as a result. And so I would get these tips of 25 cents, maybe 50 cents a month, and at Christmas time, a buck, which was huge. So I think that was the first time I had to basically extend myself. That is a great, great first entrepreneurial endeavor. Our next question is, how has your formal and informal training shaped your journey? Well, how much time do we have? Uh, (laughs) So when I started the business, as I said before, I was greener than green. You know, I was very fortunate because even back in the day in 1990, I understood the value of networking and I joined a trade association and I met a mentor, Barry Brennecke who started Guardian Real Estate. Actually, I think he might have bought the business, but he, was, he owned Guardian Real Estate at the time. They were a fee manager. And Barry became my mentor. I would call him and bounce ideas off of him. And so that was, you know, step one, that was extremely valuable. And as I say, I, I was part of this trade association. I met a diverse group of property managers, investors, lawyers, and vendors, and I networked with them to learn the business and to learn their business. There was a lot of training that, that I took advantage of, both structured and unstructured. There was lobbying, both local in the city of Portland as well as the state. That association became somewhat dysfunctional over time. And the group of us in Portland ended up forming our own association. And I'm one of the charter members of that, along with Barry and a few other people. And I served as the first president and then served on the board for about 10, maybe 10 years. The association now is called Multifamily Northwest. And I believe they're the largest in the state and they represent over 100,000 apartment units. But what was great about it was I got way more. I mean, I would spend hours a day working on association business. In fact, the first location was in my office. 
it was a conference table in my office that became the headquarters. And that only lasted about a year, and then we leased space downtown. But what I got so much out of that experience with the members that we had attracted and that grew, we started with, I don't know, Barry's units at the time, maybe a couple thousand units, and CNR's units, and, and Princeton's units, and Anyhow, it was it was a small number, maybe 15,000 units total, and now they're over 100,000. Maybe they're over 200,000. I have no idea. But that was a great experience. And so I would say for anybody new starting out, I would say networking is, you know, job one. That's the only way you're going to learn. That's extremely impressive. One of the founding members of Multifamily Northwest. We use your guys' forms all the time. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know, incredible about those forms. Those forms. So those original forms are, I think, our first or second meeting. We were up at the quintet, and we said, "All right, the first thing we have to do is we need forms." And Barry had had his own forms, and he gave us permission to use his forms as long as we paid for the modifications and the ongoing modifications, which we did. And they were all printed forms, and that became the backbone of how we got funded. We all put in several thousand dollars of our own money to start the association, but it really was funded by forms income, and then eventually education income, and then there were golf tournaments and you know other events that generated income. But really, the forms were the basis, and now Tenant Tech basically uses our forms. And they're licensed and, you know, they provide all the day-to-day. And I think the association gets a, they get a commission for a reform that's bought or some, there's some relationship there. But wow. yeah, the forms are important. That is so cool. Yeah. Thank you so much for starting that. <laughs> it's been a huge, huge help to us. And yeah. Okay. And our final question. What was your Moby Dick, the one property that got away? So you're not going to like this answer, but I don't have one. Not, <laughs> uh, so, he, he, so Chris, the reason why is because I never look back. I never look back. It's always looking forward. You know, we can't agonize over deals that we passed on that made sense. That's the nature of this business. There's always going to be a mess. You know, if you're a batter and you shoot and you bat 300, three out of 10, you're considered to be the top of your sport. Well, in this business, if you're 50-50, then you're probably at the top of your field. And so I just, to me, there are many deals we passed on that have really worked out for the investors and they've made people a lot of money. And I think that's great. And there's, there are probably many people out there that look it up and say, oh, I can't believe he bought that deal. I wish I had. But you can't run a business that way. And so I never look back. I only look forward. And, you know, I find value in, you know, specific aspects of the investments. And maybe somebody else sees, sees an investment, sees something in investment that I don't see. And maybe that's my downfall. But for the most part, it's okay. What's you know, let's talk about the next deal, not the last deal. That's such an awesome mindset. Yeah, just another great little nugget right there. Well, Steve, thank you 
so much. This has been really awesome, super informative. I can't wait to, you know, pick your brain more offline, but. Yeah, really, really appreciate having you on. You know, thanks for sharing your information with, with our audience. And yeah, we appreciate it. Let's get out on the All golf right. course. <laughs> All right, we'll see you guys out there soon. Thank you. All right, cheers, Steve. All right. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community for investing knowledge for growth. Please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone you know wants to be on, please go to westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form.